Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to Heritage Voices, episode 69. I'm Jessica Uquinto, and I'm your host. And today we are talking about the Utes as a forgotten people. Before we begin, I'd like to honor and acknowledge that the lands I'm recording on today are part of the Nuch, or Ute Peoples, Treaty Lands, the Dineta, and the Ancestral Puebloan Homeland. And today, we have Ernest House Jr. on the show. Ernest was the former executive director of, for the Colorado Commission of Indian Affairs, CCIA, for over 11 years, through which Ernest maintained the communication between the Southern Ute Indian Tribe, the Ute Mountain Ute Indian Tribe, and other American Indian organizations, state agencies, and affiliated groups. In that position, Ernest worked closely with Governor Hickenlooper, Lieutenant Governor Donna Lynn, and the CCIA members to maintain a government-to-government relationship between the state of Colorado and tribal governments. Currently, Ernest is the Senior Policy Director for the Keystone Policy Center, working with various stakeholders in areas of tribal consultation, energy, healthcare, and education. So welcome to the show, Ernest. Thank you, Jessica, for having me. It's an honor to be on your show. I should first start out saying Mike the Guvendoyak, which means... Hello, my friends. Thank you for the opportunity. I'm a member of the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe, and it's even a bigger honor to be doing this podcast here from my hometown in Cortez, Colorado, and the Four Corners area in southwestern Colorado. And yeah, just thank you for the opportunity to uh, to join you today. Yeah. So it's it, like we were talking about before we started recording. I don't usually get to to do these with with people that I've worked with and where I'm personally just really excited to get a background on the other things that you're doing besides the thing that we're working on together. So to get us started on that thread, what got you interested in this type of work? I mean... It's real specific and uh, not a lot of people know about it. So how did you, how did you find out? How did you get into it? Yeah, no, thanks. Well, being born and raised in, in Southwestern Colorado, McElmo Canyon is where I grew up and on the Ute Mountain Ute Reservation. My father was uh, Ernest House Sr., was a longtime tribal leader. He served for over 35 years as an elected official for the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe, served as chairman, council member. Uh, my great-grandfather, who raised my father, was Chief Jack House, the last traditional chief of my tribe, of the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe. He passed away in 1971. And when he passed away, he passed away with the title. So he that's why he's referenced as the last hereditary chief. So there was a lot of, of my upbringing that was rooted in tribal politics, that was rooted in advocating for water rights. I was rooted in advocating for off-reservation fishing and hunting rights. We do all those activities. We hike around our canyons, around our home. My uh, great-grandfather was credited with opening up the Ute Mountain Tribal Park, which is on the backside of Mesa Verde National Park, 125,000 acres. It's a tribally-led outdoor recreation place where we bring in non-native members to bring, to show them a lot of the Ute history, ancestral Pueblo history, list goes on and on. So yeah, I just, I grew up with this appreciation and knowledge passed down through grandparents and great-grandparents and my father around why the Ute Mountain Tribe has 600,000 acres in three states, why we don't have more, why we have several enterprises and why we should have more and why we don't have, you know, why we might have less and just the challenges I think of being, you know, Colorado is, is a lot of people don't know is, has two federally recognized tribes within its state borders. And that's my tribe, the Ute Mountain Ute tribe and our sister tribe, the Southern Ute Indian tribe. Our other sister tribe, the Northern Ute, as we refer to them in Fort Duchesne, Utah, were forcibly removed by gunpoint after the Meeker massacre. We often call it the Meeker incident. But our first 
reservation was established in Colorado in 1868. And, but the Utes have been known as, as you know, the, the people of the shining mountains, the, the weird mountain nomadic people moved with game, have hunting blinds still standing in Rocky mountain national park. Our last uh, ceremony in garden of the gods in Colorado Springs was around 1906 until we were removed from that location as well. So, you know, when we talk about, especially now with states recognizing indigenous histories, tribes that were forcibly removed, displaced to make way for metropolitan cities or growing populations we see today, that, that Ute history was always embedded in, in, in when I was growing up, just surrounding me. And I would, I'd go to Washington, D.C. with my father and hear him advocate about water rights settlements and, and the struggle of the plight of, of, of the Wimanuch band and which is our band for folks that don't know, there's several bands of Utes like, like many tribes and, and those bands consolidated over the last 150 years to make up our three Ute tribes today. So the Southern Ute tribe make up two of those bands, the Mwach, the Kapodi band, Ute mountain tribes, the Wimanuch band, the largest out of all the seven and then the, the other four consolidated to make up Northern U in, in Utah and Fort Duchesne, Utah. So, you know, growing up, that was really always the focus. I remember not too long ago, my mother cleaning out some old boxes that she had and, you know, kind of as parents do, they, they, they find these old boxes from your high school days or whatever else. And they want to like, here you go, you know, <laughs> and I was looking through some and there was a paper that I did in high school about the Bruno treaty agreement of uh, 1874. <laughs> and it just, it, it shocked me because after I went through high school, I went to Greeley to university of Colorado and Greeley and I wanted to be a baseball player. I wanted to, that's all I wanted to do. You know, it's all you do down here is basketball or baseball. And at that point, hearing it so much, I definitely didn't want to tribal politics. I also saw the bad side of it as well growing up and just didn't want to do anything related to it. And it was interesting how it ended up coming back into my life. And, and then got an internship with the state of Colorado with the Colorado Commission of Indian Affairs, which is uh, established one person agency, was established in the lieutenant governor's office. And a lot of people don't know the lieutenant governor in the state of Colorado has a statutory responsibility to chair the Colorado Commission of Indian Affairs to maintain the government to government relationship. And so I I wanted to give it a shot. And, and at the time, Karen Wild was the executive director. She taught me so much about the commission. Um, I'd known Karen before through my father's work and, but, you know, tribal, being a tribal liaison, that wasn't a thing back then. It's not like what you go, I think there's more certificate programs out there in higher education around, you know, those particular roles and, and opportunities to engage. That was a huge opportunity for me. And so I ended up being the first Ute Mountain um, tribal member to to hold the position as executive director for the Colorado Commission of Indian Affairs. The Southern Ute tribe, our sister tribe, had a member that held the role in the early 90s, uh, Cynthia Kent. And I got a chance to meet Cynthia during my tenure at the state and great to swap stories. And because when you're, I mean, I think when you're in office of one, not only is you're dealing with so many different issues from visiting and talking about Native American spirituality in prisons and meeting with uh, Native offenders and advocating for access to to continue and maintain our spirituality. And then you're talking about education issues or healthcare issues or teen suicide issues. And a lot of times you end up being the voice and falling victim to that tokenism very quickly. And so it was helpful to have this commission be the, not just the sounding board, but also be the advisor. You know, our, our tribal leaders were actively represented on this commission that was started in 1976. It was actually started out of protest because the state had not returned some Native American human remains that they had had. That led into a much larger conversation that, you know, I can get into here in a little bit of the, one of the major projects that I think shaped my and shifted my career, but that's really where it got started. It, it got started 
little did I know that at the time, what ended up being trail building in the Ute Mountain Tribal Park and then being a tour guide, learning about all this history from my father, from my grandfather, from my great grandfather would end up being my biggest resource in talking to Governor Hickenlooper, Governor Ritter and Governor Owens, who I ended up working for. Wow. Okay. So you're also a tour guide. I didn't know that at the tribal park. So first I just want to put in a a quick plug for the tribal park. It's very cool. Uh, If you're ever up in the area, definitely, you know, book a a tour, check it out. It's very impressive. We took some friends there and they were like, Oh, is there just, you know, this amount of pottery at every site in (laughs) this area? And it's like, no, you go to Mesa Verde and there's nothing, but it's just covered. So it's, it's very special that the tribe is protecting it in that way, still giving access, but you know, it's clearly not picked over the way that public, you know, totally public sites are. Um, So definitely a big plug for Ute Mountain Tribal Park and the other Ute Enterprises are great. You need some blue corn meal, bow and arrow is your people. So, (laughs) Um, and they have, I think some like gift things as well. So we can put that in the show notes. So definitely support them through that or the casino or the hotel and same with, with Southern Utes. But going back to the CCIA, can you tell us a little bit more about some of the the projects that you worked on when you were there? Maybe if there's like a couple of examples that you could give of, of projects that you were really excited about and really proud of. Absolutely. I think the two biggest ones that, well, I guess the three biggest ones that come to my mind was the first one, I became executive director in 2005. And Right at the height of it, ongoing conversation had been going on in Colorado and the tribes, the two Ute tribes, around the return of continuing this conversation from the 70s and through the 80s around the return of Native American human remains that had been found on state and private lands, but because of the loophole with the NAGPRA could not be returned to unclaimed or tribes that did not claim them as descendants. Oh, yes. And the, and so culturally unaffiliated meant that these remains were found and there was no determination of affiliation made or even a mechanism to present to tribes so that they could make a claim. So what happened is the state ended up collecting over 400 Native American human remains. And I remember going into this warehouse that was downtown Denver. It was under a busy street. It was crazy because you could hear the people driving uh, over above your head. And it was one of those scenes where like, you know, the movies where you turn on the lights and it just like one light turns on and then the next one and then the next one. But it's like this hallway that just keeps going and going. And and I remember that's the first time and it was highly secured facility. And I just I wanted to know, obviously, what, what we're dealing with in terms of the amount, in terms of, of how the, the issue that we're talking about. And I was taken aback by just the sheer size and the problem. And, and fortunately, there were people before me that had been trailblazers both on the tribal side and on the, on the archaeological and anthropology side. You know, I think this was still a time frame where cowboy archaeology was active and strong and not really reporting anything, not really, you know, talking to tribes, coordinating with tribal reps was not, was just did not happen. Folks were out there on their own, even taking advice or direction from tribal representatives were, uh, was not happening. So when I jumped in, we had already received a NAGPRA grant at the time to establish a process to develop a protocol for the state of Colorado to address inadvertently discovered Native American human remains found on state and private lands in the state of Colorado. That was the title of the protocol. I think we got the word for the longest title of a state policy. <laughs> and and uh, But primarily, we tried to solve it. We tried to go to the attorney general's office. And it wouldn't fly for whatever reason. We tried and created it at that level. We tried to run legislation, state legislation, and that didn't work. So the longest, hardest 
possible solution was going to be the absolute longest. And looking back, it was the best thing that could have happened. It took three years to meet with tribes, not just the two tribes in Colorado. We were attempting to meet with any tribe that called Colorado home that could provide a preponderance of evidence that would tie them to anywhere in the state of Colorado at any point in time. And when you think about that, I mean, that lift alone, and when we would tell people, they were, I remember they'd be like, what are you thinking about? Like, are you serious? Like, and so hugely appreciative of the NAGPRA grants that we were able to pull to do that. We did that in three regional consultations in Grand Junction, in Denver, and then I believe we did it in Santa Fe. At the end of the day, we ended up having an agreement with 48 historic tribes of Colorado, including the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe and Southern Ute Tribe of our, our Colorado's oldest continuous residents of the state. And the agreement was, was that it actually had a few different levels to it. But one of the biggest things was that a, a time clock really started ticking once inadvertently discovered Native American human remains were found in the state, which are between 10 and 15 annually every year in the state of Colorado. I mean, we have a majority of that is, is around the springtime, around spring runoff season. So when there's natural erosion, uh, but we've, I mean, the amount of cases that would come in would scare you. I mean, everything from, I remember that there was actively, there was um, someone who was selling Native American human remains uh, up in the, the mountain town somewhere. I remember there was a, when YouTube was, I mean, to me, it seemed like YouTube just came out, but <laughs> quickly found out that there was a, um, a hunter who had found a Native American human remain and, and was physically disturbing it and knew about it. And then recording it at the same time and putting it on YouTube. So work with the FBI around identifying who this individual was and then identifying the local landscape and where that was located all the way to people that were doing estate sales for grandma and grandpa that had unfortunately passed away and they hadn't been to their house and they literally had skeletons in their closet. And so all the way to the, to the, just the farm and rancher who was plowing their field and came across, you know, some type of thing or putting in an addition to their home or a pipeline or something like that. So it varied across the board, but we created a process so that when those were found and when the information was collected by archeologists, that there would not be photographs taken. There would, wouldn't be any information shared other than with the tribes that we had the agreement with that, no movement of the remains were to be done until a tribal representative was on hand and was monitoring the situation all the way up until eventually the reinterment. If you didn't have any tribes that would step forward and make a claim based on the information and location or funerary objects that were with the individual, then the two you tribes in Colorado would take the initiative to return them. I thought that was really big because even though out of 48 tribes, historic tribes of Colorado, this is also including Cheyenne, Arapaho, Comanche, 19 Pueblos in New Mexico, Navajo Nation, Hopi, Zuni, Hickory Apache, Mescalero Apache, Ute Mountain. I mean, across the board, we all have our different perspectives on death alone, right? And But at the end of the day, they were indigenous. And so that agreement was sent such a huge, I think, message and signal. People like Terry Knight and people like Alden Naranjo with Southern Indian Tribe were individuals and, and Neil Cloud of Southern Indian Tribe that stood up that said, if no one's going to step forward to rebury our relatives, even if they're any of you, any one of our tribes, then we'll step forward to ensure that they belong in the ground because one thing that is universal is that they need to continue on their journey and we need to do that for them. And a much better place than in some room underneath in downtown Denver, that's not respectful at all. And, and so that process, and, and again, like you also had state state representatives and history Colorado that were advocating for this change. And it just shifted the whole process of, of how, 
NAGPRA, Native American Graves Protection Repatriation Act, was handled, how this new protocol would actually unfold, how it was going to play out, what funding it was going to be was going to be needed for it. I mean, this is all brand new to the state of Colorado. So after that was signed, Colorado was the first state in 2007 to have adopted that type of protocol. Now, since then, no, numerous other states have followed suit and I think have gone above and beyond the letter of the law to ensure. So a lot of people to ensure that that we do right by by these indigenous remains and, and our indigenous communities. But I think that people are often surprised when I use NAGPRA as a point that actually pulled together different perspectives as opposed to separating us. It was actually a law that we were able to utilize to our benefit to ensure that different voices were at the table and to be successful ultimately in creating something that was, you know, much needed for the state of Colorado at the time. Okay. So we are already at our first break point. So much more to talk about. Um, So we will be right back here in a moment. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Okay, so we're back. And uh, one point that I wanted to say about what you were just talking about, too, is that, you know, that process that you guys worked out, it really seems like it's the base of now a lot of other people's processes, like federal agencies and and people like that, with the Ute tribes being kind of this first responder role or, or, you know, taking over if if there's no claimants, uh, sort of a situation. So it it seems like it really had big impact for the, the state of Colorado, at least. And hopefully, you know, other states as well, that those tribes, you know, all those 48 tribes took that back and hopefully made things better where they are too. So I wanted to hear more about a couple other examples of, of some things from your time at CCIA, uh, in addition to uh, your work with the ancestors. Absolutely. So I think that the second one example with my work at the Colorado Commission of Indian Affairs ended up being my work with the Cheyenne Arapaho tribes which is something that I'd never had been involved or engaged with. Moving from southwestern Colorado, the Denver area, the front range of Colorado, majority of the population in the Denver metro area, uh, it's not Ute. (laughs) It's Plains tribes. You know, the majority of the population represent the uh, Sioux nations, Nakota, Dakota, and Lakota. The fastest growing is uh, Diné, Navajo Nation members living in urban areas. Colorado's Native American population is about 2% of the state's population, which is very similar to the national United States numbers. Nationally, American Indians represent 2% of the total U.S. population. So Colorado mirrors that. But again, because our two tribes are located in southwestern Colorado, people might assume that the largest population is in southwestern Colorado, but actually it's in the Denver metro area, including which is a seven-county district, including Boulder County. Anyways, so when I got involved with working with Shine Rappo tribes, it was just really getting jumping into the deep end of the pool about learning about Shine Rappo. And I, you can't learn about that with obviously without learning about the Sand Creek Massacre. And so in 2007 is when the Sand Creek Massacre National Historic Site was dedicated. Uh, then Senator Ben Campbell championed it was a big champion of it with tribal leaders developed or, or instituted at the time, the process. And and then being a part of the conversation with the state of Colorado uh, and other institutions about how to appropriately tell the story of Sand Creek, which uh, for those that don't know, was one of the worst massacres 
of American Indians in, in U.S. history. It was done at the hand of the U.S. Cavalry, led by Colonel John Shivington. At the time in the 1870s, it was 1860s, 1870s, there was state officials that had then territorial governor John Evans had actually wrote an op-ed piece in the Rocky Mountain News calling for the um, settlers, the uh, residents at the time of, of new-to-be state of Colorado to take up arms and to kill Indians in the state, kill hostile Indians. That Colorado had an Indian problem, right? And this was during that time frame that I'm sure a lot of people um, know and, and have read about. But third, this they call it the Bloodless Third that Colonel Shivington was in charge of. They trained right outside of Boulder, Colorado and Valmont, uh, community of Valmont. And then they traveled to the Eastern Plains near present day Eads, Colorado, where the Cheyenne Arapaho tribes had been had been told to stay and, and to be located and that they would not be harmed. And Chief Black Kettle was given a white flag and a, and a U.S. flag. The white flag, he was told, was going to obviously signal that that his encampment was not going to be charged upon if there were any cavalry units around at the time. When they heard the cavalry charging, he rose the flag. The cavalry, over an eight-hour period, wiped out over 200, mostly women, children, and elderly of the Cheyenne Arapaho people. And that's the site that people can visit today, the National Historic Site that's managed by the national park system. And so I started working more on this and, and working with tribal representatives over the years and consultation and talking about the history, learning of these stories. I mean, one of the most impactful was, was the spiritual healing run that happens every year to commemorate uh, in honor what their ancestors did when running in snow. It was it's held during Thanksgiving. I always remember every Thanksgiving. That's like the only thing I think about along with, you know, what my family is doing too. But I always remember that time because today these Southern Cheyenne Arapaho, Northern Cheyenne and Northern Arapaho will send busloads of family members and, and of youth. And these young members, these, these young youth members of their tribe will run in teams, in relay teams for three days from Eads to the West steps of the Capitol building. And they've ran in snow, they ran in rain, hail, hot days. I mean, whatever it is, they run in remembrance of, of their ancestors. And you can't be moved by that type of experience when you see it. And when they would get to the state Capitol, they would actually walk the last mile because in Colonel Shivington's, in his unit, there was two individuals that really particularly stood out. One was Lieutenant Joseph Kramer and Captain Silas Soul, who withheld their men from charging into the encampment. And in fact, if it wasn't for, for Silas Soul, he wrote letters back to his mother. And it was based on those letters that ended up court-martialing Shivington and keeping then territorial governor John Evans from becoming the first governor of Colorado because of their involvement and their, you know, direction of what happened at Sand Creek and what played out Sand Creek. And so every year I'd work with the Cheyenne Rappo tribes on the run. We do a proclamation at the West Steps, always welcome them. And then it wasn't until when I was working with Governor Hickenlooper, I believe it was 2014, that Governor Hickenlooper was the first governor in the state of Colorado to issue an apology on behalf of the state to the tribes for, for what happened at Sand Creek. And you know, there's so much emotions, I think, wrapped up in that. And then working for an elected official who's not native, who didn't have to do the apology, could just continue on like other folks had, had done. It was pretty moving to be able to see that happen firsthand and to see elders and to see <laughs> these children that were there that did this three-day run that ended up being at the state capitol. But the biggest thing, I think, was what happens next, right? And that's the same thing that I told Governor Hickenlooper at the time was, you know, just because if you do this apology, that doesn't mean that everything's back to okay. You know, this apology should have happened a long, long time ago. Right. And so now 
we have to continue working on this relationship. We have to better our communities, both of our communities, by learning from this and moving forward. I feel like that's also why Silas Soul wrote those letters and why they ended up court-martialing these individuals because we have to call people out for doing bad things. And if anything, history, that's what history is, right? If we don't learn from it, we're bound to repeat it. And so I think that that's been the biggest, one of the biggest messages and, and biggest things that I've been able to, these two things have, have working with other individuals have, who have clearly been, I mean, I just happened to come in, the conversation was already starting with NAGPRA in the state of Colorado. The conversation had been going on between the Shine Rapo tribes in the state of Colorado. Now was the next chapter. Now was, but these moments laid huge frameworks and added to the groundwork that had already been done of the foundation to establish better working relationships between a state and a tribe. Everybody is aware and we should know and respect the federal tribal relationship. That's important laid out in the United States constitution, but what's not talked about enough in my opinion is the state tribal relationship. And if you look at court cases right now, if you look at McGirt in Oklahoma, if you look at uh, Martinez v. Wyoming, if you look at anything that goes on, it starts at the state level. It starts at a local impact. Something happened at the state that's challenging it that, of course, rises the issue above it. If there were better working relationships in Oklahoma, would McGirt or ICWA be where it's at? Maybe not. If there was better relationships in Montana or Wyoming, would Martinez v. Wyoming and off-reservation hunting being a big deal in Yellowstone? Perhaps not. Or would American Indians be able to have better access to vote in South Dakota than they do now if there were better working relationships between the state and the tribes? I, I, I hold those examples of like where we need to go and that even though there's been so much already in Colorado that's done, how much further we need to go. And was that South Dakota or North Dakota during COVID where the, where the tribe was blocking off the highway and okay. South Dakota. Yeah. But uh, yeah, another example of a, a situation that could have been vastly better handled with, with better relationships from the beginning. So, okay. So we, we've been talking about your time at CCIA. Let's talk now a l- more about your current work at Keystone can, can you give us some examples of what you are working on there? And then maybe also why you wanted to switch from a state role to a, a nonprofit uh, situation? Yeah. So I'd spent about 12 years at the state and those three governors, four lieutenant governors, but I'm not counting, <laughs> and numerous tribal leaders, including my father, who I got a chance to work with. And that was uh, at sometimes very odd as someone who's supposed to represent the state sitting across the table with my father, who's the elected chairman of a federally recognized tribe. And sometimes the state was not in agreement with the tribal stance. And that was that, that created very interesting dinner conversation after the meeting. But my father was, was a great teacher and, and always had this teachable moment. But anyways, So then I transitioned to the Keystone Policy Center. And I want to start by saying the Keystone Policy Center, we're not affiliated with the Keystone Pipeline. So I just, I usually say that because some people say Keystone and where it's Keystone, Colorado, we're actually headquartered in Keystone, Colorado. And we have an office in Denver. We have an office in DC. And the Keystone Policy Center is a nonprofit that was established in 1975. And it was meant to, uh, it followed along the lines of, if folks know about the Aspen Institute, but the Keystone Policy Center brought, the goal was to bring different perspectives to the table, to find common ground, to, for the attempt to find common ground. So it was always jumping into complex issues. And when I thought about when I wanted to leave the state and where I wanted to go to, I wanted to continue the work that I'd been doing with like, not just the NAGPRA example or the Sand, the Sand Creek example or Native American mascots or, you know, on and on. But it was to continue kind of creating these examples, expanding them at the local level, but then taking them to other states. And I think Keystone was an opportunity to do that. I've, I've launched the Center for Tribal and Indigenous Engagement at Keystone. So quickly, we started working on projects around energy development, 
tribes that are both extractive industries themselves, but also looking at transitioning to renewables, building solar farms, wanting to develop their own uh, electric co-op, be their own electric grid, um, the whole process around hydropower, you know, it didn't matter from from folks that were bringing more awareness around reducing their carbon footprint to transitioning from outdated extractive industry, oil and gas type of stuff, like what's next type of thing and not leaving tribes out of that conversation. I also grew up, I mean, meeting and, and having huge respect for people like David Lester, who was the longtime director for the Council of Energy Resource Tribes, Sir was developed under the umbrella of the Keystone Policy Center back in the late 70s and then branched off independently in the 80s. But that was why Keystone was there, was to bring these perspectives to the round the table and then they launch and they go whatever direction. That's great. That's That brings more awareness to the issue. So I knew it was a friendly crowd. I knew what I wanted to do was going to be accepted at Keystone. And I think what it also has done has now worked. So one of my clients as our project is with the city of Boulder around tribal consultation. And that's kind of interesting because it's come full circle for me. I was a part of the conversation back when I very first started at, at CCIA in, two, in, two, in 2004 and to now and seeing how they've bettered their relationship as a local government. I think that's another chapter yet to be written, but now conservation groups. One of my clients is Trust for Public Lands, also the Nature Conservancy for Colorado. And you have these conservation groups that are now, you know, over the last couple of years, especially after Black Lives Matter, and we're talking about diversity, equity, inclusion, or Jedi justice, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and what that means to indigenous communities, particularly BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, people of color. And I think the conversation now that we're starting to see is recognizing this history, you know, no matter where you are on land acknowledgements, no matter where you are on on renaming mountains and mountain ranges or places particular to indigenous people, it's all involved in this. And at the state, you often have to, you're jumping into an issue sometimes at the 11th hour when you're scrambling around trying to figure out a path forward. And it was kind of nice to take a breather to be able to actually collaborate with folks at the very beginning or to plant the seed and watch it grow and be there to kind of help guide it as it moves forward. So that's really what was, was the whole idea. I think at the end of the day, though, if it's with the state, if it's with Keystone, if it's wherever I go after that, it's always going to be to change the public's perception of the American Indian. And what I mean by that is Colorado, we've seen so many, so many changes in awareness on indigenous issues just within the last three years. Things that I've advocated for, my predecessors have advocated for, those who've gone before and tribal leaders and state leaders have advocated for, which is bringing more awareness to indigenous issues. So we're seeing the Native American mascots disappear. We're, we're seeing in-state tuition for members of historic tribes of Colorado, 48, that want to come to, to higher education in, in Colorado. We're seeing more policies being created and avenues where the faces that I'm used to, where I'm seeing more of them around the table. And that's, I think, what, what the goal is, is, is that, you know, that people don't think and automatically assume that either the Utes or just American Indians in general are a vanishing race, that we're a forgotten people. Because I've had people tell me that straight to my face, like, oh, I feel so sorry for you. I'm so I'm because of, you know, the, not just the way you've been treated, but then, of course, you know, I saw the 60 minute special about Pine Ridge and I've seen this and that. That's what's always out there. But I mean, when the last Lone Ranger Tonto film was filmed, it was Johnny Depp, who was not a Native American. That's a reality. Now we're being more aware. And of course, there's been a group that's constantly been out there telling us that it is wrong for blackface. But when are we also saying it's wrong for redface? When are we, you know, and, and not just the activism, not just, you know, what people tend to see or believe or, or you know, but it, it is about the clean water. It is about what the conversations happen across tribal lands like Dakota Access Pipeline. 
there are 574 federally recognized tribes out there that are dealing with any one of these issues, complex issues, trying to continuously bring awareness to their history, culture, and moving forward to the future. That's where I want to see. And I think that's what we're doing at Keystone. All right. It's amazing how quickly it goes. We're already at our second break point, but we will be right back here in a second. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So we're going to dive right back in. So can you talk about, uh, you know, you mentioned some of your work at Keystone. Can you talk about some topics or issues that are really front of mind with your work right now? Yeah, I think the the biggest things that I think I've seen really come out over the last and really transpire over the last couple of years been with conservation organizations, NGOs, around how to build stronger relationships with tribes. You know, when they talk about stewardship, when they talk about recreating outdoors, this is something that we as indigenous people have always done, right? It's embedded in our DNA. So we don't have, we don't have, a, we don't have words for that in our languages, or at least the youths don't, don't, but we just have, we apply different definitions to that. And I think when it's a part of your everyday existence and hiking 14ers, 14,000 foot peaks may not be the everyday thing that youths do today, but the pathways and, and, you know, that are now highways over mountains like Colorado and other areas around the Rockies, um, have always been indigenous and there's a place of that. But when we talk about public lands and the awareness, especially in like Colorado and Western states around advocating for people to get outside, to enjoy the outdoors, that this is all for you. There needs to be an acknowledgement. There needs to be an understanding. Like, how do you educate the person who's just flying into Denver, Denver International Airport, just for the weekend, weekend warrior, we like to call them that just go to Vail and they want to experience the Vail experience and then go back to DIA and flies back to wherever they're from. Like it's, do you really get a chance to educate that individual? Who knows? But when he or she are out there and maybe wants to explore a hiking trail in Vail or wants to stop in and learn about something at the visitor center, like those conversations are now starting. I mean, they're getting out there more because the outdoor recreation office is advocating that more tribal voices be at the table, that the information that they share is legitimate. It's not just some stuff that they thought of or saw in a movie or something like that from 30, 40 years ago, that it's actually consistently updated and that builds stronger partnerships. And I think that also starts feeding into these conservation groups that have continued to hold stewardship at the top of mind, at the top of their goal now participating with tribes around, wow, what does conservation look like with tribes? What does co-management look like? What does land back mean? Should, instead of transferring the land to another third party or individual or whatever, why is that not transferred over, over to tribes or organizations helping on tribal lands? You know, we, we, we at Ute Mountain are right in the southwestern part of the state. So we're very much dependent on water that's coming from the Dolores River, that's coming from the San Miguel River, from the Animas going through Durango. We have water rights based on those. But because of the drought that we're currently in, our farm and ranch enterprise, which is a 7,000 acre ranch, it's cattle calf operation, it's... Um, 80% alfalfa hay and the other 20% corn. 
that goes into local grocery stores. We grow it, we mill it, we package it on site, and we send it out to your nearest Albertsons or your nearest Whole Foods or your nearest Sprouts. That's entrepreneurship, right? That That's what we can do. That's what the future of the tribe. But when droughts like that hit and we have tamarisk issues or we have, you know, olive tree issues or other invasive species on these waterways that we cannot maintain of our, ourselves because of capacity issues or whatever else, those partnerships with those groups, those NGOs are hugely important. And I think that's where the partnerships can continue to move forward. I'm not just talking about the usual issues between like mountain climbers or rock climbing, you know, trespassing on a tribal lands kind of stuff. Yes, we need to do more education there, but it goes back to educating that weekend warrior wanting to, to have a great time in Vail or wherever else on the Western Slope. I hope that at some point there's a touch point where some type of information is shared and hopefully that ends up planting a seed. But I think that's where we start getting into the conversation around co-management. And I think that's what I'm seeing now is the biggest question these conservation groups and others are talking about. It's also the federal government. Now, believe it or not, two months ago, Congress Committee on Natural Resources in Congress held its first its its first hearing in in its history with tribes talking about what co-management means. The first time, first time ever that we're talking about co-management. And there was an author, and I'm forgetting his name right now, but had penned an article in the Atlantic talking about should national parks be returned to tribes or advocating that they should be returned. So the conversation is out there and not just for, I think, tribes in the United States or even native villages up in Alaska, but native Hawaiians in Hawaii. I mean, have always, I mean, the conversation, especially now that we're seeing the national, the growth in national parks coming out of COVID, people want to get out, want to experience something they haven't experienced before, want to hit the road, want to go out and see Mesa Verde National Park, want to go see Canyon of the Ancients. And please, yes, come see the U Mountain Tribal Park. But all of that is means that, you know, we need to be prepared for that population growth. And we need to start thinking about different ways to manage our federal lands. And part of that is the co-management system. No matter what your politics are, that's what the intent, at least what one of the biggest things I was excited to see in the designation of Bears Ears National Monument was that it was going to be the first attempt to be able to have a tribes as an official co-management position. Just think about what that would have given us insight into historical, cultural, ecological, traditional knowledge that's emphasized in there. Now that we're talking and seeing huge drought conditions in the Southwest, what's going on in the Colorado River and the upper basin, lower basin, the fact that we don't have tribes, at least for the Utes that have been around, according to the archaeologists, 10 to 12,000 years, according to my people since time immemorial, but whoever's timeline we're going after, we've been around for a long time. So you, I would think that you'd want to have the best knowledge capable to solve the problem of tomorrow. And I think that's why we need to consistently advocate that indigenous voices be at the table. Because if it's anything else, every time I go out to the tribal park or go out on a hike with my family, you know, one thing that I do is take a pause and just hear the silence, right? There's power in silence. And I think that when I hear that silence, if it's, if it's the wind, if it's the birds, if it's whatever it is, it's what I'm hearing I'm hearing our Ute songs. I'm hearing our Ute language because it's, it's there. And the moment we tend to forget about that, we lose sight of that. Then we start going different direction. And I feel like it's not the right direction that we need to be on. And so I I think that when we start talking about co-management, it opens up more conversations to getting us to a land back scenario or a scenario where we're educating not just the weekend warrior, but the student that's going to school in Boulder, Colorado, that also took a trip to the nearest park and found out that all these different uses or of these medicinal plants that indigenous cultures had used to sustain us for generations. I think that's power. Yeah. And I think, I think a lot of people, when they think of co-management, they think of you know, we're going to work with this tribe and we're going to find out all of their traditional ecological knowledge and it's going to help us, you know, better manage. And I think 
from an outside perspective, one of the most important things that I think tribes bring to the table is just like this sense of, of respect for the land that is so much deeper than, you know, like a lot of, a lot of us white people talk about respecting the land, but it's like in a, in a totally different level that I think is necessary if we're going to make real change, you know, like in the face of, of climate change, for example, um, that you have to really change some mindset in addition to just, you know, like, oh, okay, well, they say that this plant grows better with this. And, you know, like, oh, if we burn it, like last episode, this is probably going to come after, um, it'll grow better. You know, it's, it's more than just like taking these little facts and incorporating it into a, you know, already planned out to the, the nines management plan. It's, it's really bringing different perspectives to the table. Anyway, before I get off on a, a side note, but I do want to talk about uh, land back a little bit more because that's something that you and I have, have been talking about more recently and has come up in a couple different ways. And so I'd really, first of all, can you, can you explain what land back is? And can you tell us more about what you're seeing with it and maybe where you'd like to see it go? Absolutely. Well, I think the the examples that I've seen thus far around the country, the successful examples of land back is really essentially that it's land being returned to tribes or a coalition of tribes. There's an example in Northern California where the Redwoods, a portion of the Redwoods were returned, I think over 500 plus acres were returned to a coalition of tribes. Same thing most recently, I think in Montana, who also had similar things or even just to individual tribes that had once and, and continuously called that area home. I think that the, I think there's a, a couple different avenues and ways to get to land back, but eventually really it's returning that land. That's ultimately the, the goal. I think there are also some, some benefits for co-management. I think a lot of times the uh, tribes, at least in my experience, my tribe one person's wearing multiple hats. So having a partnership would expand the capacity that may otherwise be put on somebody, some, some position that was already overstaffed or overwhelmed with other projects going on. I think so there's a capacity issue sometimes. Ultimately though, the agreement, you know, that we see in Colorado are a couple different things, identifying locations as the relationship builds and gets stronger with tribal nations about what, type of land this government, local government or state government oversees. And I mean, let's be honest. I mean, the the land that these places expanded were at the displacement of indigenous groups, right? Broken treaties or, or whatever it might be. And so there needs to become awareness. I mean, if we just jumped over to city officials, like we see in a lot of areas of our work and just automatically throw that out there, they're, they're going to be a little bit surprised and we're kind of a little nervous about what, what, what's going on because I also don't expect them to have taken that elective course in their college or higher ed career. So a lot of times the information that we're sharing about indigenous knowledge is not there yet. And I think to your point, we also have to be very careful as indigenous people of how much we share because we've seen throughout history that whatever we have shared has been taken from us and has been sold or has made other people rich. And it's been at our benefit. And yes, we could turn that back clock. It'd be a lot of different things I'd love to do, including trademarks, but you know, that's a, that's time for another podcast. But I think that, that it's, it's important that when we talk about land back, at least in my opinion, there's the journey of the tribal history that what can be shared so that, that these city, state, county officials, they see they can connect the dots like we connect the dots. And we bring them along, along with it so that they understand, oh yeah, you're right. This is why this should transfer to a co-management position. This, at the end of the day though, I've always felt all the way going back, my, one of my very first lessons in the NAGPRA example with the state was unless it's tribally driven, it's most likely to fail. Yeah. And I think that because tribes have often left, been left out of the boardroom or the decision-making table, 
they're, they're, the likelihood of, of failure is very high in, in those situations. It's when you we have and we work hard to consistently keep those tribal voices at the table with us and they're driving the conversation, they're giving the directions. That's, I think, when we're going to see that success. And I think that that comes in, in a partnership. So again, we're, we're getting real close to the end of the episode, but I just want to see if there's anything else that you're really excited about or, or looking towards vision wise in the future, or if, you know, land back is it, then if there was anything else that you, you know, wanted to explain to our listeners. So for example, if you have a, a soapbox that it's like, ah, oh, if I could just have everybody know this one thing, the world would be such a better place. Uh, I'll leave you the, that option between those two questions. Well, I think, I mean, it's a great question to end on and I wish I had a better answer for it. But I think at the end of the day, my call to action is is ultimately that that I hope that, that your listeners who are not uh, of the indigenous perspective or even of, of their heritage or culture, that you continue to educate yourself on tribal issues. You don't have to be in the front lines to be a tribal advocate. You don't have to be in the halls of Congress to continue, you know, being out there. You can very much be an advocate and a supporter in your local community. And I think advocating and getting involved and encouraging your, your own, your kids, your family to, to support some of those, some great films out there, short films around outdoor recreation, if that's your thing, or if it's uh, conservation, if that's your thing, whatever it is, we're seeing more and more indigenous authors, indigenous programs, reservation dogs on Hulu, you know, and now with dark skies coming out on in other areas. I mean, there are just great uh, and we need to bring awareness. We need to bring recognition to more indigenous authors and, and having their place and being given that recognition a small thing, it's a small thing, but it's a huge thing at the end of the day that I think we end up seeing more. But otherwise, after this, I think looking forward to continuing building the relationships between local government and tribes, states, tribes, NGOs, tribes, and European museums and tribes. There was an effort we launched a handful of years ago to build a relationship to hopefully return, repatriate items that were taken uh, and and are now residing in European museums. I'll tell you that there is an interest in doing that. I've seen it firsthand. And I think there's some groups here in the United States that are advocating for that as well. It's time to take, A, it's time to update NAGPRA. B, it's time to take NAGPRA international. And, and I think that there's an opportunity, if anything, to expand our federal and state policies that we can better over time and experience, update those and and have a better uh, position moving forward. Bringing all this big stuff right at the end. I want to hear about the international repatriation efforts. I want to hear about changes to NAGPRA. I want to hear about all the things. We'll just have to talk more another another time. Thank you so much for, for coming on and taking this time. Uh, I, for one, know how busy your schedule is, so I really appreciate you taking the time to, while you were down here, come sit with me. So thank you. Togoyak. That's great. Togoyak. Thanks for listening to the Heritage Voices podcast. You can find show notes at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash heritagevoices. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Play Music Store. Also, please share with your friends or write us a review. Sharing and reviewing helps more people find the show and gets the perspectives of Heritage Voices' amazing guests out there into the world. Don't we just need more of that in anthropology and land management? If you have any more questions, comments, or show suggestions, please reach out to me at jessica at livingheritageanthropology.org If you'd like to volunteer to be on the show as a guest or even a co-host, reach out to me as well, jessica at livingheritageanthropology.org You can also follow more of what I'm doing on Facebook at Living Heritage Anthropology and the nonprofit Living Heritage Research Council or on Twitter at Living Heritage A. As always, huge thank you to Lyle Belenqua and Jason Nez for their collaboration on our incredible logo. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, 
DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media? Source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.